Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer, and thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Today, we will be discussing the current crisis at the United States-Mexico border, specifically the surge in unaccompanied minors arriving in the United States. But first, let's go around the room for some introductions. Dave? Yeah, my name is Dave. I graduated from Marquette in May of 2020 with a degree in political science. Glad to be here, Liam. Thank you, Dave. And Brian? Hi, my name is Brian. I also graduated uh, from Marquette in 2020, and now I go to Marquette Law School. Thank you, Brian. Miranda? Hi, I'm Miranda, and I'm a junior at Marquette University. Thank you. And Phil? Uh, I'm Phil. Uh, I'm a senior studying applied mathematical economics and theology at Marquette. Thank you guys for being here. Also, if you guys, uh, the listeners, like the show today or would like to listen to past shows, you can find us on Spotify Podcast under the title, A Republic to Keep. And a reminder to all Wisconsin residents to vote on April 6th for the state superintendent of public instruction and various state judicial positions. The number of immigrants apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border has grown exponentially since the summer of 2020. However, the vast majority of these migrants have been immediately turned away as a result of new COVID-19 border regulations. In March of 2020, the Trump administration invoked Title 42 of the Public Health and Safety Act, which allows U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, to immediately expel any apprehended migrants crossing the border without screening them for an asylum claim. A federal judge in November of 2020 ordered the Trump administration to stop the deportation of unaccompanied minors under the Title 42. The Biden administration has largely kept Title 42 provisions intact, but has expanded entry for asylum screening to some migrant families. Further, the Biden administration has put announcements out in Central American countries stating the border is closed in an effort to deter migrants from coming north. The increased surge of unaccompanied minors has proven to be beyond the federal government's capacity. In January 2021, 5,964 children crossed the border alone, which increased to 9,297 more in February. The Biden administration estimates that between 18 and 22,000 minors could cross the border in April alone, another 22 to 25,000 in May. The most recent figures state that the CBP currently has 5,100 minors in their custody, and the Office of Refugee Resettlement under the HHS has 11,900. According to the Tracking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act of 2008, unaccompanied minors can be held in CBP custody no longer than 72 hours or three days. After, they must be turned over to relatives in the United States, of which 80% of these minors have, or to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, ORR. However, the average amount of time children have been kept in CBP custody is 130 hours or five days, with over 800 children reported to have spent over 10 days in CBP custody. Texas Congressman Henry Cooler recently released photos of the cramped and harsh conditions in CBP processing facilities. After denying the media access to migrant shelters for children for several weeks, the Biden administration has allowed press access to certain HHS facilities last Wednesday. HHS has sent requests to use two military bases to house migrant children in Texas and is reviewing the possibility of using two additional bases. Vice President Kamala Harris was tapped this past week to lead the effort to resolve the current crisis. So, the first question I'd like to pose to the group is how should the United States respond to the current influx of unaccompanied minors at the U.S.-Mexico border? And can the Trump or Biden administration be blamed for this current surge. So let's start with one. What can an administration, can um, one administration over the other or any administration be blamed for this current surge? I personally would take the stance of no. 
um, I guess you could look at it, I don't know, certain screening procedures, certain laws for admittance um, into the United States might be affecting, you know, the surge of people being stopped at the border and not being let in. That could, you know, uh, that could show to have a higher number of people just kind of clogged up at the border. But I don't know if I don't think they should be blamed for the fact that the people are there. Um, so that's my position. I mean, you, you don't think that Biden's rhetoric pre-election had anything to do with the surge? You know, you mean like causing people to come over? I mean, I just mean Biden, you know, clearly took a stance pre-election that was far more welcoming to illegal border crossings. He, day one, stopped the construction of the wall. Just kind of everything he's done thus far has been encouraging of the behavior until the photos got out, basically. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would still say, take the stance of no. I don't think that the, the, the rhetoric would, in my, in my view, cause the influx of people actually choosing to come across. Um, I'm not sure um, if someone has the numbers for that as to, you know, the surge of people coming, choosing to come across um, now that Biden has been elected president. Um, I'd be happy to see those numbers. But yeah. uh, I mean, <laughs> the ones that I've seen um, from people inside the administration, they've even said that it's going to potentially be the highest number of crossings in 20 years. Mm. Wow. In the year 2000, the number of apprehensions at the border was 1.6 million. 2005, that was decreased to 1.17 million. And in 2019, the latest surge, it was 851,000, the highest since 2007. And then in 2021, uh, so far there's been about 96,974. So it looks uh, as of February. So it looks like it's uh, over 100,000 right now. It is on pace to be higher than 2019. Yeah, February February numbers are, are much higher this year than they were mm -hmm. in the last couple of years. Um, and obviously, they're just going to pick up when the weather gets nicer. And that is the expectation, as I said before, uh, up to 25,000 unaccompanied minors in May is the projection, the higher end of the projection. But also, in the surge, what are the main factors? We also had to take into account the main factors of why people take that dangerous trek thousands of miles to get to the U.S.-Mexico border to try to gain admittance into the United States. Now, there has been a tropical storm that hit the Northern Triangle where many of these migrants are coming, especially the migrant children. Now, the, when I refer to the Northern Triangle, that is the three countries, Honduras, uh, El Salvador, and Guatemala, where many of these, especially migrant children and families, are coming from. Now, Tropical Storm Ida hit that in November 3rd, and Hurricane Iota, November 16th, which has left the region devastated. Also, COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions have dilapidated the economy in that area, and have the criminal drug gangs have also been very ruthless, even during these COVID times. I mean, maybe another factor to think of is, I mean, with the vaccine rolling out, maybe people think that... If they come here, try to seek asylum across the border, that they could get one. Um, I mean, that could maybe be another factor of why there's a sudden surge. But I agree with Phil to a certain extent with the rhetoric of the Biden administration. I mean, obviously, a little bit looser um, in rhetoric for illegal immigration and maybe having a more a more tolerant stance. Um, as far as that's concerned, so then maybe there's like a mix of both where they think, well, now we have a, a more accepting president and um, we want to be healthy, I guess, with the vaccine and in addition to those um, other factors you just mentioned. And the vast majority... Could, yep. uh, yeah, if I actually could pitch in on this one, Liam. Of course. Uh, so I was actually reading something prior to this. Um, from the Migration Policy uh, Migration Policy Institute, so a policy analyst by the name of Jessica Bolter actually said, and I quote, the U.S. government um, still hasn't figured out exactly how to manage this flow of families and children. And throughout the Trump administration, the government neglected to find a way to adjust U.S. border enforcement mechanisms in a way to protect their rights, but also exerts control over the system. 
and Bolter kind of went on to say to that uh, uh, similar reasons to what you stated, pandemic-related uh, economic deterioration, deterioration and hurricanes, as well as the long-standing issues such as climate change, gang violence, and government corruption are literally, literally the reasons why people are fleeing from Central America to really come to, uh, to the United States. So I just think it's interesting how you have all these different issues that kind of permeate into one re- or like permeate into multiple reasons as to why people are trying to at least cross the border and try to seek refuge in the United States. And I'd also like to point out that uh, even though the Trump administration had much harsher rhetoric trying to deter people overall from coming to the United States, there was still a massive surge, the biggest in 15 years, in 2019. Um, Actually, maybe not 12 years, sorry. And the biggest in about 12 years in 2019. So even with that rhetoric, there was a huge surge. And the economy worldwide was actually doing rather well. While in this, the economy has become extremely dilapidated around the world. However, the U.S. is actually looking brighter due to vaccines and due to lowering restriction, COVID-19 restrictions and opening up that economy. Yeah, I do. I've been thinking. I, I do like the... Um well, the idea that the COVID, you know, did have a factor in causing more people to want to come across, um, mm-hmm. as Tope Miranda said, that's a great point. Um, I'm sure at least if there aren't studies out there now looking at those numbers, there will be soon. Um, at, you know, in hindsight, we always see it much clearer. Um, but I do like Phil's point a lot about, um, you know, even if these, uh, the gang violence and the natural disasters, the hurricanes, um, and also COVID, if this might have made people, um, you know, those are things besides COVID, those are always things that are around. You know, there's, that's the worst place I think in the world for, as for hurricanes or one of the worst places Mm -hmm. in the world as for hurricanes. And I know Honduras and the countries in the, in the, what'd you call it? The the Northern Triangle. Northern Triangle. I think in Honduras specifically, um, it says it's, it's the most dangerous and the most deadly place to be a woman in the entire world outside of a war zone. Um, so these things, you know, these factors are always there, but I like what Phil said as for, um, I'm going to kind of put words into his mouth. These things have always been there, but at least the Biden rhetoric maybe caused people to make that step, you know, like the, the, the pressures were always there, but this is kind of a thing saying, Hey, yeah, you know, at least you can try because you might have a better chance now than you did last year. Well, and and I think it's going to be harder to solve the problem, too, because when, you know, you kind of are actively encouraging something to happen and then it happens and you're totally overwhelmed by it. And then you don't call it a crisis um, and limit press access. uh, You know, it's kind of a a level of of denial, at least during the 2019 surge. Trump called it a crisis immediately and I mean, tried to fix it um, in in some way. Um, and, And, you know. Along, kind of going along with that, I mean, where are the photo ops from the congresswomen and who went down in the last time? You know, where where are the tweets about how these are basically concentration camps? You know, um, I just think that it, it kind of exposes a, the, the double standard that that the left has kind of had on this issue um, a little bit because I, you know, I to your point, um, this has kind of clearly always been a problem, no matter what the administration mm-hmm. is. Um, but the administration kind of can form policy based on on what their rhetoric is, and I think the rhetoric has, has clearly um, not helped the situation. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, that is also very true. Um, it, it seems like, you know, on, on the campaign trail or when you're in D.C., it's easy to say, hey, we love, you know, People coming across the border. I don't know if he says that, but <laughs> kind of that yeah, kind of pretty rhetoric. close. <laughs> yeah, that rhetoric, that rhetoric. Um, but then when it's in action, it's it's like, oh, yeah, oh crap, oh, <laughs> we said it, but how are we going to follow through? And I, yeah, it's a really interesting point. I like it. And how how should the administration currently respond to this crisis? Second point of the question. See, this is where. Um, over the last year, as you know, Liam, I've, I've tend to go a little bit more liberal, um, but and I've done I've done some work um, for about a year in immigration, like 
as for the legal proceedings and legal procedures of immigration um, in the law, uh, not so much on the policy, but I still tend to lean towards a hard border and more strict guidelines for um, admitting people. So, so when I looked at this question, I felt like an urge to automatically say, hey, we should fix the surge of, of or the, the kind of, I want to say more of like a clotting of people at the border by letting more people in, fix the screenings, fix all these things, you know, speed it up. But then at the same time, I, I actually would want to more say, unfortunately, no. I mean, these are our procedures. You, you can fix the screenings and things like that. That might help. But I don't think we should loosen, you know, guidelines and, and, and loosen our laws just because there's a clotting of people at the border. That's my position. On I, I do wonder why we're not doing something quicker. I mean, you feel like yeah, 10 days, what, what was it, 10 days for some of the kids? Uh, yeah, about 800 have reported about 10 days or more. I mean, I just feel like how, how, how is that not quicker? Yeah. I mean, I understand there's a lot of them, but I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think there's just a very big blindside effect, and this has risen exponentially in the past several months uh, and kind of is hopefully we'll reach a crescendo soon and like a peak soon. But there was a big blindside in this that the administration dealing with COVID and other problems, this kind of bubbled up out of nowhere in a lot of senses, it seems. So I, but I, it does. It, that is, uh, just to be frank, that that's uh, unacceptable. That children are waiting ten days in CBP custody. There should our immigration system. I think the general message is it's been broken since Bush, mm-hmm. <laughs> since even Clinton, to be honest. And there hasn't been really any administration that has really got a handle, or any Congress for that matter, that has really got a handle on it. Uh, and now we're seeing a lot of that too yeah and you say a crescendo coming soon or hopefully hopefully but what do you mean by that i mean i, I meant I'm, I'm looking at this current crisis right now yeah, yeah. so hopefully there will be we will see a peak and then a slowdown of unaccompanied moderate immigrants unaccompanied moderate. yes okay and I'm, I'm looking right now specifically at unaccompanied moderate we'll get into the bigger immigration yeah. a bit in a bit. Well, but. unaccompanied minors are, are, are really the one thing we need to concentrate on. Mm-hmm. Um, we can disagree on what to do with, you know, 20-something-year-olds coming across the border illegally. Um, I'm sure people disagree with my opinion on, on what to do with them. But the children are, are definitely the hardest part because you obviously you can't just send them back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? So, but then also, like, how do you find who their parents are? And yeah. Things like that. So it's... That one is really the thing, and I, to to your point, I, I don't understand why. Like, we need to do something now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, one of the Trump administration policies was to send them back originally. However, in November, a federal judge did reverse yeah. that. I think the general policy now isn't it. The approach to it is that you you keep them, you hold them until you can find, you know, a. a relative in the United States that they can go to? Yes, and 80% approximately of these children do have some relative in yeah. the United States, uh, thankfully. So that, but there has to be much better program to find those relatives and to release them from HHS custody. Now there's got to be a quicker pipeline from CBP, CBP processing to that HHS. And they're trying, they're really trying to do that right now. Mm-hmm. It's been a little bit of a snail though, yeah. <laughs> to be frank. I think general, you know, stop the bleeding kind of thing by opening up more and more um, bases, as you Mm -hmm. you know, um, to house these children is, you know, what else can you do besides speed up the process for finding the families and that kind of pipeline and then expanding the bases um, to to the extent you can um, in order to not have these children as I saw in an article, take turns sleeping on the floor because there wasn't enough room. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally don't see much more you can do besides speed up what you already have. But, I, yeah. I mean, this could be an unpopular opinion, but I, I think another thing is to essentially send everyone who isn't a child back. <laughs> mm-hmm. I and mean, that's, that's the overall guidance it'd be, it, right it'd now. It'd make everything so much quicker um, in terms of processing the children. And, and, the one thing I worry about with like opening up bases and, and more places to house these people is if you also 
are letting non the non children people stay um, for for a, for a period of time, then that also doesn't help the perception that you don't want people to come. Yeah. If you're making room for more people now, understandably, we need to make room right now for for the people here already. Mm-hmm. But if you continue to open up more places, and you don't seem to do anything to really stem the tide um, of people coming in, um, I, I think people are going to probably see that as as a reason to a more a reason to come even more yeah and the the title 42 is still intact they are still sending everybody especially single adults are completely barred some families have been opened up so would you say families should be barred as well then and just just on the company monitors yeah i would just i mean i okay. think that seems like the easiest quick solution it would drop the numbers at the border pretty precipitously it would show that you, you're not encouraged to come over here mm-hmm. um and and to that point i i i think it was the hhs or uh some one of the one of the um administrations said that it's actually only 13 percent of people being sent back right now oh wow um I, so i don't I've, I've seen very different figures than that to be perfectly honest um right, well I'll, i can check them out but um, um from what i've heard it's you know which way um anyway to move on to this point for right now it seems that we do need to expand capacity for hhs to house these uncompeted monitors and i think u.s military bases are pretty good way to do that i mean they, they have a, a high level control over these military the u.s government has high level control over these military bases and there seems to be a lot of capacity and you can put up these shelters uh, relatively quickly. There's also a lot of bunk beds as well, which is much better than the floor. Uh, Can you reiterate for our listeners and me, for that matter, um, what Title 42 is all about? Of course. So Title 42, um, let me pull it up. It is from, well, <laughs> got to look it up really quick. Uh, Just a quick, quick mm-hmm. note um, from Axios and other places um department of the department of homeland security 13 percent of families were being turned away 87 percent are still here oh families okay yeah. well fa- there is and there of course uncommon monitors it seems should be absolute priority number one i think the administration right now is trying to deal with a fallout and here's the thing it, there is a political aspect to this as there is everything with government and policy where if the Biden administration turns away families, that might be there might be a fear then that they're turning away families. How dare they? So there's always that balance too. Yeah. Looking at the political aspect, which of course isn't a great reason, but I think that's the an explanation for activity or behavior. That's just gonna get tougher, tougher yeah. too. Because um, you spoke of a crescendo, and I wanted to bring this up earlier, but I don't know if it was the proper time but um hurricane season mm-hmm. um as for a quick google search that i found <laughs> um is from june to about november which i don't know if you guys know you know calendars and stuff but june's coming up really really fast um, yep. so i don't know if this is going to get better anytime soon um also I, I would just say to the to the point about turning away families i mean you we have two options Mm-hmm. Right. Either they stay. I mean, we're not going to keep them at a border facility for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what I mean, really, what are the options? It's taken every single family that comes to the border or it's send back the families that come to the border that can't reasonably um, claim asylum. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if that's what the 87 percent. I don't know if they're trying to process whether they're asylum seekers or not. But um I mean, unfortunately, like at the end of the day, you kind of have to make a choice. <laughs> yeah, especially in these times, I mean, with COVID, with Title 42. And also, by the way, Title 42 is just Section Title 42 of the United States Code. It basically allows um, the cutoff of asylum, the cutoff of processing asylum and allowing people into the country during public health crises. Okay. And that is what has been invoked uh, since the Trump administration and largely uh, kept especially for single adults in the Biden administration. Um, and there, there is also, um, in a way, a slinky effect here, too. Overall, it is estimated that about 40% of the people apprehended at the border, so at least single adults apprehended at the border, 
are returned. So they get expelled immediately once they, upon coming, and then they have to then they are come back and try again. Mm. So there is that slinky effect, and that is a a big part of the single adult apprehensions. Yeah. And I guess one thing I want to throw out there for resolving the crisis in, in, ter- in terms of short-term COVID crisis as well is the United States currently, uh, they, the United States pre-bought a lot of AstraZeneca vaccines um, in the summer of 2020, as many nations did too, in Operation Warp Speed because AstraZeneca was one of the vaccines the U.S. was backing with Operation Warp Speed funding. And so now the United States has tens of millions of unused AstraZeneca doses, and the FDA has yet to approve AstraZeneca for U.S. Now, AstraZeneca is 76% effective. Although there has been some recent scares, the EU and the World Health Organization now say AstraZeneca is safe and effective. What about the possibility of just sending more of these AstraZeneca vaccines to the Northern Triangle and Mexico, where many of these markets are coming from, to help, I guess, mend the economic devastation that has happened there and help, I guess, mend the situation, too. Yeah, I think that that's a great idea, but I I think those other factors are still there and people are going to come regardless. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Well, this is a piece of it. Oh, definitely. I'm not saying this is is not the cure, no pun intended, but this is is a... Fix definitely part of it. It's a patch more uh, mm-hmm. because you know a lot of that stuff's going to have to come through Congress, um, and that's not as quick or as easy as you'd like. I mean, as for that approach, I yeah, I can get behind that. I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, I know that a lot of the more Western countries, like the U.S. and European Union, have really bought up a bunch of the vaccines, and a lot of developing countries um, are said to not be vaccinated until 2022 or 23, which seems a little unfair. Um, I don't know, I guess just the economic advantages that Western countries have. Um, So I think it could be helpful, especially if we're not using them yet, to send them over. But I also think that, I mean, it's important to put U.S. citizens first. So assuming that we don't need those vaccines right away or that, I mean, it seems like the vaccine rollout has been going pretty good. And we were just talking earlier how one in four Americans have at least their first shot. So assuming that um, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need them and that Congress would obviously allow it and taxpayer dollars going for it. I mean, I don't see why not, but I think that could be um, at least part of a solution. I'm not sure I love the optics of sending a drug that we haven't approved Mm-hmm. through our own FDA to a foreign country. Um, I think just perception-wise, if, you know, if the if it's fine, then, you know, let's get it approved. Um, if it's approved, though, as Miranda was saying, I think U.S. citizens have to come first. So it's kind of a weird, you know, it, it's weird because it, it's it's almost like saying, well, like, well, we, we don't trust it yet, but you can. <laughs> like, well, the Mexico's health ministry has already approved AstraZeneca, for instance. Yeah. Um, so... Looking at that, but also looking at the fact that there's kind of been a distaste among U.S. citizens for AstraZeneca. They, most U.S. citizens would rather have Moderna or Pfizer. We've already pre-ordered enough Moderna or Pfizer to more than vaccinate every single American. And those are coming in rapidly, too. And also Johnson & Johnson we have as well. But AstraZeneca, we also have to pay attention to the fact that there are variants out there especially in developing countries like, for instance, Brazil, the Brazil variant. If these variants grow in the Northern Triangle, Mexico, then they may, God forbid, but they may overwhelm the current vaccines that we have mm-hmm. and make another fourth wave. So we, do, we should be aware of the possibilities of variants coming back to bite us if we don't resolve that spread in developing countries also. I actually think that's a that's a great point, um, even just symbolically of of maybe how we should begin to handle this problem, which is if we can help build these countries up, mm-hmm. there might be less of a reason for them to um, that their citizens would be trying to come come up here. Um, I know that we've tried that a lot. We've thrown yeah. a lot of money at it. Um, typically, it has to do with a lot of corrupt politicians in the in the home countries, but. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I still think that that's, if done properly, that's probably the best option. Um, mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I just think that's an interesting point. Yeah. I've always loved that idea. Um, I think when I, you know, have become more liberal and done my little conversion, I think that that's, <laughs> that's something that's really, you know, come out. Um, but you're right about the fact that we've we've done that before. I mean, I feel like that's been the kind of approach that we've just had had generally. Um, but I, you're completely right. If done properly, that is symbolically and you know effectively a great response. Mm-hmm. And in terms of building up those countries, so there is a Biden plan that he's uh, put out there for his administration. That includes, the first plan includes looking at Mexico and the Northern Triangle, as I said before, and implementing $4 billion over four years in aid efforts to those countries, then with a real focus on anti-corruption efforts and improving judicial capacity in those regions. But also another aspect is mobilizing private investment in that region. Mm. So trying to spur that economic growth as well from with outside investors too. So what we and this is um, this is definitely more aid than the United States has sent to that country. Before I believe under Obama it reached about five hundred and fifty million uh, in a single year in twenty sixteen, if I'm correct. And this would be a, roughly a billion each year. So would I mean they they don't they haven't really put the nuts and bolts of this proposed policy out there yet. But if they're really focusing on anti corruption, that might. That might be something right there. I don't know the the whole nuts mm-hmm. and bolts of this plan. It's the first time I've heard of it, honestly. Um, I'd have to look at it, but in general, it's in like classes and like seminars and things I've taken where we've talked about foreign aid and things like that. My general stance on it is that it's usually um, not done right, and it usually mm-hmm. does more harm than good. So, like for example, with corruption, I mean, you can send hundred thousand dollars to whatever country but if the political leaders don't use it the right way if they're using it to help i mean there's examples of um building like apartment buildings in more rich areas of a country and then the poor areas that really need that aid still don't have anything because the the wealthy people are the ones who um donate to campaigns and get them elected and things like that so um and then so it's really interesting and so i would go more the route of private private investment. But then there's another caveat to that of mm-hmm. you have a bunch of people who don't know the area, don't know the people, don't necessarily know the strengths, and they tried something somewhere else and it worked for them. So they're going to do it here and it's just supposed to work and they're going to make it happen where that might not be received as well by the people in that area where um, I watched a video in a class where there was a private investor came from came from the outside, came from outside the country, was trying to was trying to build a certain type of farming that wasn't the actual farming that the locals are already doing. It's like, why are you trying to implement something new that when you could just maybe invest in what they're already doing and actually let the locals take care of it or things like that? It's it's kind of an interesting balance there. And as far as the anti-corruption, I think that's dangerous because that kind of sounds like if you're taking out corrupt political leaders, that kind of sounds like yeah. like military interference. This is the only way I can think of solving that unless you're supporting campaigns. I don't know. I mean, that doesn't seem to work very well when you have in Venezuela. The, I can't think of the name right now of who's supposed to be in charge. Maduro. Maduro. Well, yeah. How he's supposed to – someone's supposed to be Guaido. in charge. Oh, Guaido. Oh, that Guaido. Guaido. He's yeah. supposed to be in charge, but it's Maduro who is the dictator. And even though the United States backs Guaido, I mean, that doesn't seem to be doing much. So I don't know. It's just a it, it's interesting balance. And I'd have to – I'd obviously have to do more research on what the Biden plan is. But it's a, mm-hmm. it's a really – interfering in other countries, regardless of how you're doing it, is really tricky. U.S. doesn't have a great track record in interfering in Latin America. I'd love to see the nuts and, like you keep saying, nuts and bolts, but I'd love to see, like, Mm -hmm. what that looks like, what the, you know, investing in or aid to stop corruption, what does that actually look like? Um, But, yeah, I think that might be a little too big for our show today. (laughs) (laughs) That gets really into technical questions um, as well. Yeah, but, like, that... I mean, just in the face of it, um, of what we've talked about from here today, I I would almost lean tor- more towards the private investment as well, just because mm-hmm. it seems like, you know, um, you can make mistakes, you can, you know, 
be dumb about it. And it's not a good thing, but it seems like it's more, based on what we said today, more effective than um, this stopping corruption. Uh, how do you stop corruption by getting into the, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd also say that, and I do like the private investment idea because if you're looking at corruption, you got to put power in the people. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and like to do that, I think empowering local entrepreneurs may be a good strategy for that. Empowering local farmers and not necessarily pitting them, not pitting them against the state, but basically empowering them with that capital. In a way, capital is power. And with that capital, with that those funds and improved business, I think that that's something that really should be a stride for in this. Yeah, you always run into the risk, though, um, especially in the Northern Triangle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, gang violence yep. is a very serious issue, especially in places like Honduras, um, mm-hmm. uh, Northern Triangle. But, um, yeah, where, I mean, you you want to put in the infrastructure to help the local entrepreneurs, local businesses, but then extortion, you know. Well, and then the, the problem, too, is, like, what happens if, you know, the, the money that we send down there – I mean, you, you quoted a billion dollars a year. About, yeah. So what if, you know, we send a billion dollars down there and we pay the local entrepreneurs, but then what if they come under attack from the government or mm-hmm. the gangs? Yeah. Do we have a responsibility to keep our investment safe? And then it's, is that a military operation? <laughs> and then it's, what are we, <laughs> we're back in, and then all of a sudden we're back in Latin America. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's very slippery. I mean, because you don't want to just, like, let that billion go. Like, oh, well, mm-hmm. uh, we tried. We tried to invest, but uh, money got stolen. <laughs> yeah. Darn. That it, there's all, it, there is a, a tendency to throw money at problems and think it will go away. So along with this, these funds, there definitely should be that sense of what else can we do, what, ingi- uh, what creative solutions to these problems can we put forth that isn't spending taxpayer dollars too and that's going to be a fundamental thing up in these next four years we need to see i think there's also a question of like does it have to be the u.s's responsibility i mean when you're talking about corruption and investment at a certain point considering how many problems there are that we've all mentioned over the past 10 minutes um, of what can happen when you interfere militarily or monetarily or whatever i mean at some point how do we encourage people who are in their countries to do something about it themselves, you know? And I, I don't know what, how you do that. I don't know if that's the right way to go about it. But that seems like the most sustainable solution if it's if you don't have to rely on some other country to solve your problems. And I don't know how you do that, but... Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to shift, if I may, uh, the conversation to our second question, looking at the asylum and the intricacies of that. So how should families, minors, and adults, individuals, be screened at the border? In other words, what should be the requirements for who can enter and apply for asylum? And really to uh, define how the U.S. defines asylum, I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Yeah, um, I'll just kind of, you know, go with the definition of asylum uh, before we get into that. So the definition of asylum is basically somebody who... Um, is categorized as a refugee, but they are either present in the United States or seeking seeking admission at a port of entry. So the difference between a refugee and an asylee is the refugee is, you know, a refugee, but they're in a different country. And they're like, I want to come to the United States um, based on this, you know, fear of persecution. Um, And we'll get into that in a second. But the asylee is a refugee who is either in the United States or at that port of entry. Um, So more specifically with a refugee, um, a refugee is a person outside his or her country of nationality who is unable or unwilling to return to his or her country of nationality because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution on account of, and then this is where it gets into the nitty-gritties, race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion so basically a refugee is a person who is outside of her his or her um, country their their country um, such as you know person in Honduras um, who is unable or unwilling um, 
leaning more towards the unable, I would say, um, to return to that country, let's say Honduras, because of persecution or well-founded fear of persecution on you know account of those different categories that I just listed off. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does, yeah. Sorry, just to clarify, does persecution mean from the government specifically, or can it be from any type of group? That is a great question, and <laughs> it's open to interpretation. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to look at all the, the the loads and loads of case law that go into that. Um, but I think that generally, generally, um, generally, it's the government. But um, there's the thing that says if the government acquiesces or is unable to, you know, if they either choose not to um, fix the persecution that is on the hands of, let's say, gangs or something, if they're if they're unable to fix that persecution or they're unwilling to fix that persecution, then they would also fit into that. Okay. So generally it's the government, mm-hmm. but yeah, if they are unable or, or unwilling, um, then they fit into that um and a lot of times it comes down to like race and religion i feel like it's generally easy to show Mm -hmm. in a country like myanmar with the rohingya um the muslims you know in in rohingya in in myanmar are being persecuted and killed and based on their religion and um, in libya black libyans are oftentimes um, persecuted based on their race as black Libyans um, versus just um, northern Arab um, Libyans. But it comes down to membership in a particular social group or political opinion is where it really gets into like the nitty gritties. Because What does that mean? Yeah, um, because um, gang violence is really what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, when you said before, it, I believe Honduras was the most um, violent or... Yeah. Uh, the most dangerous country on earth uh, that was not a war zone for a woman. Yes. So if I'm a woman, am I a member of a particular group that is subject? So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I believe the law right now would say no. Just saying I'm a woman Mm -hmm. and I come from Honduras, um, you're not just automatically a member of that particular social group that is is eligible, excuse me. Uh, A lot of times it's small business owners being extorted, you know, or if you take a stance against a gang or you are um, maybe a former gang member that has since renounced their gang membership, um, that would put you at a higher risk of being extorted, of being killed, of being threatened, all these things um, on behalf of these gangs, let's say. Um, And that would place you into a membership of a particular social group. Now these categories change from country to country because of the different country conditions. Uh, but that's kind of the general idea. Political opinion typically will look more like, um, typically it'll look more like, you know, there's a certain government. Like Venezuela. Yeah, like mm-hmm. Venezuela. Good example. Um, I, it also happens a lot in, like, the former Gaddafi um, like soldiers in Libya um, are often uh, persecuted on behalf of the government and other gangs in Libya. Uh, because of their participation with the Gaddafi regime. Um, so that would also fall under political opinion. But yeah, that's kind of the general idea of asylum and refugee status. So mm-hmm. that's how we look at right now. Um, as for, you know, acceptance under asylum, but you kind of lead it to, led to a question as to who can, you know, apply for asylum once you're at the border. That's, uh, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to the, the legal definitions of this, too. I mean, in 2020, for instance, 15% of asylum applications were granted from those coming from the Northern Triangle or Mexico, while 85% were rejected. And these are um, these are the guidelines. These are the rules that must be followed in that. Mm-hmm. So what do we think about the asylum definitions, or should they be modified? Should they... Um, Reduced, increased. I think they're they, they seem pretty le- fair to me. Um, like I, I have no problem with with it in in a very. I would say I like the narrow take on it. Um, I I don't love the idea that a violent just if you live in a violent country, per se, you're like automatically qualified because that would qualify, unfortunately, qualify quite a few people in the world. Mm-hmm. And 
obviously we are incapable of taking that many people in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like it in kind of the narrow view of it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it, like I said before, comes down to membership in a particular social group. So that's where a lot of people, when they come and they apply for asylum, they're not looking at race, religion, nationality, or political opinion. They're looking at how do I fit into this membership of a particular social group? Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, it oftentimes comes with gangs and sometimes it comes with single women with families. That's one thing I've seen a lot um, with uh, asylum applications is I'm a single woman who has a family and my husband either left me or is killed. Um, oftentimes, more times than not, I believe it's left. Um, and they are at a higher risk of becoming, you know, of being extorted or being um, um, threatened, harmed, killed. Um, but oftentimes I think that specific, you know, categorization does not fit into a particular social group. So expanding in that sense, that actually either might come with, you know, legislation or it, uh, oftentimes it comes with um, the judicial branch of things, you know, putting it through the courts, getting some precedent on these particular social groups. Um, just another political thing we could talk about more in Dave's, Dave's <laughs> court, but, um, uh, but yeah. Okay. And I guess now that we've looked at really the crisis itself, asylum, what are we thinking about once herd immunity is established and like COVID-19 is neutralized, right? what policies should be pursued to fix the flaws in the United States immigration system? And kind of more so in the general sense. I, I think you, you go back to, um, you know, de-incentivizing people to show up at the border. Um, and I think you assert sovereignty by hardening the border. Uh, I, I think it's it, it might not be the most beautiful solution to the problem, but I, I think that it's a solution that's needed. Um, and so I, I would just say I think Trump was on, on a better track when it came to both of those things. It, obviously, it wasn't perfect. There was a 2019 surge and everything. But um, but I think I, I think something along that line, I think, is probably the necessary solution at this point. And so would you say a hard wall, for instance, a physical border wall uh, along the around 1,933-mile border, would that be a better play? I mean, I don't know about the entire border. I know a lot of it is is um, the Rio Grande mm-hmm. River. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I would say a hard wall where it's, where it's possible. And outside of that, I would put a lot more drones. Um, boats uh you know things like that around uh just yeah beef it up Uh, my question is how does somebody like joe biden change his rhetoric uh, to de-incentivize um at this point and still hope to i don't know if he's looking to get reelected uh it's a different podcast um (laughs) he he has said he's gonna he's gonna be seeking re-election really i did not know that 82 we'll see 82 (laughs) wow we'll see yeah (laughs) go uncle joe um (laughs) but how does he change his rhetoric and still hope to be re-elected i don't know i don't know the impact of you know changing his stance on on um, immigration policy but i can see that if he did change his stance to something that would be less incentivizing um, to people crossing the border, then, you know, that could be pretty detrimental. Um, oh, yeah. I I think he's politically pinned in. I, I think yeah. he's in a very, very hard um, spot. Now, I, I I don't have too much sympathy because he put himself there. Um, <laughs> but I agree. I, I think he's in a very tough political spot. Now, if he did, if, if his sole purpose was to get this under control, um, I know that he's saying don't come now well i would just say don't come and then i would you would have to start showing that you stand behind the rhetoric of we're going to turn you away and so i would say you probably have to start beefing up the border and um doing other things inside the border to to de-incentivize uh e-verify um you know visa overstays like enforcing those more Mm. um you know 
changed he's kind of started to change his rhetoric but i would you would have to change the, your actions as well um for people to really take you seriously what about and uh, you said beefing at the border now of course many democrats have been very very against this wall it seems like especially right now it wouldn't happen politically to get that physical border wall however it does seem like there's another option that has been talked about, which is called the quote-unquote smart wall. Now, this wall would be a vast network of sensors along the U.S.-Mexico border with surveillance drones, those cameras, and heat-seeking sensors as well. That would, once they catch mo mo uh, sorry, motion of human beings crossing that border, then CBP or ICE officials will be alerted to that location and be able to directly get there in a moment's notice. That's fine. The, the beauty of the actual physical wall is that you probably, in, in, in much of it, don't really even have to police it if it's a good enough wall. <laughs> the thing is, we've had a pretty vast wall, especially along all of California and Arizona. There has been many, many tunnels found underneath that wall, too. And there's been people very very able to get over that wall as well. There's uh, also a triple wall, though, outside of San Diego. And when they put that wall up, uh, border crossings dropped 90%. So I, and f people aren't going to like it, but I would say I know we have a fence, like a 20-foot tall fence or something, but I was thinking something more beefy. <laughs> beefy. <laughs> well, how much would that cost especially, too? We have to look at taxpayer dollars as well. I'd love to look at taxpayer dollars, but when Biden signs a $2 trillion spending bill where only 7% of it goes to actually combating COVID, um, it doesn't really seem as though he cares too much about spending taxpayer dollars. Also, I know he wants to put, a, uh, put in a $3 trillion infrastructure bill, and I feel like building a wall along the southern border could easily qualify in there. I mean, I don't know how much a border wall costs or the exact statistics on like the burden on taxpayers for um, illegal immigrants. But I mean, if you're having less people crossing the border in the long term, you would think that that would save taxpayer dollars too, if they're not coming. Well, and if you have a physical wall, yes, that's a disincentive. But also, if you have this smart wall with network of sensors and CBP officials that will be alerted immediately, wouldn't that also be a disincentive? Wouldn't that almost sound scarier if you're having drones patrolling that border? Well, we would still catch them, and then w would we just turn them around? Or... Well, what would a wall do? Well, a wall would—but my point is, like, a physical wall, like, we don't really have to d make decisions. We don't have to, like—like, they just, like, won't—like don't. Like I said, we don't really have to police it. The thing is, like, if we have a smart wall—I like, I want, want, want it all. But um, <laughs> if, if we have a smart wall, you know— then we apprehend people, and then do we still have the detention facilities that currently are are overrun? You know, do we or do those are, are those still things? Like, I think we can cut down on a lot of that stuff um, with a physical. Like I said, I'm I'm down for all the options, all of the above. Um, but uh, my question: this this smart wall seems intriguing. Mm -hmm. I uh, before you told me about it, Liam, I had never heard of it. Um, it sounds very scientificy, um, but does it create like a like a human wall at that point because you're getting all these sensors you're getting the cbp officers heading to these spots where the people coming over mm -hmm. people don't often come as one or two people they come in packs of people um are you going to be you know is it going to increase that um people know oh there's there's no there's no wall there's no border necessarily but there's these sensors that hopefully i can get across um i don't know that's just a kind of a question i think in certain areas the smart wall would probably be preferable like i, mm -hmm. I in a lot of the mountainous region it's it's very very infeasible to build a physical barrier yeah. um but a smart wall in like that place i think would be probably pretty pretty good but uh, kind of an all of the above immigration plan i think if you really i mean if we really want to decrease numbers i i, I think that that's the best way to do it and what about the habitat fragmentation then of those for instance, I think it was something around 16,000 species would be fragmented from certain habitats along that border. I mean, that's something we'd, we'd have to look at. I, I'm just, I'm saying if, 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 our, if our goal is to decrease the numbers, that's the way to do it. Now, if you want to, you know, 
mess with where exactly the wall is so that the species can still do what the species want to do, um, then that's that's more the nitty gritty of the actual mm-hmm. policy. Um, but just in terms of like a general thought, big picture, like what would stop hundreds of thousands of people from flooding across the border, uh, in a, in general, that seems the best option. If you don't mind, I kind of want to shift the conversation here is taking your job from underneath you lee i'm sorry no no good but i think something that's interesting me interesting to me um is that when we're talking about immigration there's obviously we've spent the last um almost hour talking about what we do at the border but i think another really big conversation that maybe could even be an out for joe biden like we were mentioning a few minutes ago is reforming the legal route to enter the united states Mm -hmm. i mean there's a reason that so many people come here illegally, and I think part of it could be, in addition to all the reasons that they want to leave their home countries, I mean, it's really hard and it takes a super long time to get here legally. Um, and I think that's also an important conversation to have, and, and it's a bipartisan conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. lots of people on both sides of the aisle agree that our legal system needs reform and how that, and that could um, su- support um, our issues at the border and trying to solve those issues. And are you referring more to a pathway towards citizenship or a yeah, pathway of yeah. permanent residency? Yeah, all and of the above. There, are, uh, there actually has been two bills recently passed by the House of Representatives, American Dream and Promise Act, and then also the Farm Work Modernization Act. American Dream and Promise Act, um, nutshell, it makes conditional permanent residence after background checks, fees, and a high school degree, and then permanent residency status for those for immigrants already in the country. Uh, after two years of college or military service and certain work requirements, makes some uh, temporary protected status amenities eligible for green cards as well. So the, the American Dream and Promise Act, really, it's, it's not a pathway for citizenship. That's another act that is that has been introduced but not passed mm-hmm. by the House. Uh, but this is more looking at permanent residency mm-hmm. or some kind of residency status. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one thing to talk about. And I don't know, I think... My only thing with talking about how we figure out this legal pathway is obviously people who are on our southern border have the convenience of of geography and being close to us and being able to cross. But there are people who have all these exact, not exact problems because different regions of the world, but similar issues, similar struggles, and they actually have to do things legally. And I think maybe reforming not, maybe I'm a little bit off topic from what you were talking about with permanent legal residency or mm-hmm. things like that. But when it comes to citizenship, how do we make it more fair? Um, like, because if someone crossed over illegally as a, I don't know, 20-year-old, ends up going to college, getting that degree, gets permanent legal residency, is that fair to someone who maybe can't just hop the border or something mm-hmm. like that if they're in a totally different part of the world? Is the the dream, what is it? The dream? American Dream and Promise Act. Is this for all illegal immigrants currently in the country, or is this for just the Dreamers? Um, the Dreamers, I believe, one minute. The Yes, this would be mainly geared towards Dreamers. Uh, there is, though, the U.S. Citizenship Act, which has been introduced but not passed, that's more geared towards all um, undocumented residents, undoc- not residents, undocumented immigrants in the country right now. I, I think... It- you know, I, I think if 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 Democrats really want bipartisanship on this pathway to legal residency, pathway to citizenship, possibly, um, I think Republicans would be more willing if you could prove that the flow is stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think it's very hard if, you know, you have 800,000 crossings in a year to say, well, OK, January 1st. The people who are already in the country, like, boom, you know, you're you're on a on a pathway to legal residency, but then you're just going to have eight hundred thousand people show up that year, and then what? Then they don't get it, you know. So, mm-hmm. and th- and then the whole problem starts over again. So, I think that Republicans, even by polling data, would be far more flexible on the what do we do with the people in the country right now if if we can actually get the tide to stop. So, it actually could pitch in on this yep. one. Yeah. Uh, also, my apologies for not really being able to pitch in that much uh, on this show. I promise next time around I will. Uh, <laughs> but going back to the legislation uh, you guys just mentioned, what was it called again, Liam? The American Dream? American Dream, Dream and Promise Act. 
Yeah, so I was actually just looking into it. Apparently, I actually had a bipartisan vote in the House of Representatives. However, I seriously doubt it will um, be able to pass the Senate because, as we know, the filibuster. Mm-hmm. However, if you really were to look at the historical data on um, passage of the DREAM Act or a variation of it, it used to be a historically bipartisan piece of legislation. First introduced in uh, September 11, 2001, by Senator Durbin of Illinois, who's a Democrat, and then Senator Orrin Hatch of uh, Utah, who was a Republican. But um, obviously, they kind of pulled that piece of legislation because one fateful event happened on that day. And even when it was reintroduced over and over again uh, during the Obama administration, even later on during the George W. Bush administration, they just failed to reach 60 votes. And when you fast forwarded to 2013, when there was bipartisan um, immigration reform uh, uh, introduced in the Senate. So, uh, it bypassed the filibuster with, I believe, 68 votes. Um, however, the House of Representatives, which was controlled by the GOP, refused to take it up because um, the GOP started to realize that this might not be the best uh, piece of leg- legislation to pass. So, these are going to anger the conservative base of um, the Republican Party. So going back to what was initially stated, I don't necessarily, necessarily know how you could solve this on a bipartisan basis. We've now it seems to be uh, this issue seems to be very toxic for really anyone. And if you're a Republican representative who uh, is in favor of passing a variation of the Dream Act, there's a good chance we're going to get primaried and lose uh, your next election. So I don't really know how you'd uh, really find a solution that is bipartisan. Uh, the only thing I could think of is just go all in on a partisan solution, which might not seem ideal, but sometimes you just have to do it if you really want to get something done. That's just my two cents on this. And I don't know about completely excluding one side from this. Uh, there are there are bipartisan things out there. For instance, Fred Upton, uh, Republican of Michigan, Maria Salazar, Republican of Florida, have just introduced, uh, in a way, a compromise bill, too, in the House. And it has two parts. First is the Dignity Program, which would be 10 years. It would give work visas to the undocumented immigrants in the country and all federal state um, and who will follow all federal state laws, pass background checks, and then pay back taxes as well, and donate to American Small Business Fund. And then that would allow them to get five-year renewable leases. The second part would be after that 10-year program, would it be the redemption program, which would be a five-year optional program, where participants learn English, complete a U.S. civics course, and then complete volunteer work or donate to American Small Business Fund, that will be lead to citizenship. So this will be a 15-year plan overall and with pretty high requirements in a lot of ways, but it would be a pathway to citizenship and some security for those working, paying taxes already in the country. So what would we think about this um, plan introduced by Representative Upton? So my question um, for this is, does that have a majority of House Republicans in favor or just uh, Fred Upton and uh, that uh, representative from Florida that you mentioned? It still it hasn't been passed or it's been introduced. So and there has not been really a definitive answer to its popularity among either caucus. Mm-hmm. OK, just curious. But it has that. been you, introduced like I mentioned earlier, this isn't really the easiest issue for the conservative portion of the Republican Party to really solve. Yeah, I, I, I'll go back to what I said five minutes ago, which is if, if you want the majority of Republicans to come along with, with one of these pathway to legal residency things, you're going to have to show, the Democrats are going to have to show that they're serious about actually stopping the tide. Because um, otherwise we kind of just see it as a futile measure. Like how is that, if anything, that might increase the flow at the border um, because it proves that we're willing to do it. Okay. Um, Looks like we're about to wrap up then with that. So is there any other um, final thoughts around the panel? I mean, I would just say, you know, kind of alluding to my last point, I I really do think that there is middle ground here. Mm -hmm. And I don't think everyone is going to get what they want. But I think that we can do a lot better than we're doing now, which is nothing. Um, and I think that we can at least make make progress. Like maybe Republicans don't get the full border wall, everything that they want in beefing up the border right now. And in exchange, but but in exchange for like maybe a smart wall at certain parts, mm-hmm. then we'd be willing to come along with some like light 
amnesty sort of bills as well. Um, so maybe we have to do it little by little. Uh, I'm totally fine with a one-for-one trade, um, beef up the border, and pathway to legal residency. Um, I'm willing to 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 do that. Um, and I think a lot of Republicans, if actually a lot of polled Republicans, I think it was somewhere in the 70 percent, um, said that if the if if the flow stopped or was mostly stopped, that they would be um, okay with that because the morality and the feasibility of kicking out what is it now 11 plus million mm, illegal million. it's just it's not going to happen so mm. and 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 we understand that so the real thing is like how do we not get it to 11 million again so that we're not in the same problem 25 years from now and i think the only way that republicans are going to go along is 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 if democrats get serious about the border but they will go along if democrats get serious about the border and that's where i think the middle ground is um at least that's that's how I've kind of figured it. And I really like that point, Phil. I, there's definitely is middle ground here. And I think there definitely has to be some serious work done at the border. And there is this is a crisis. This is a surge. And we have continually in our country's history over the past 20 years been not great at handling these surges. So there has to be there has to be efforts to stem this tide, whether that be beefing up security or reforming efforts of the government in the Northern Triangle of Mexico or both at the same time. While, uh, and if that goes along, then we can, I think, really have a good conversation about how to, with dignity, have a pathway to residency and even citizenship for a lot of the hardworking immigrants that are in this country, too. Yeah. And to Phil, um, kind of what you said earlier, my only closing thoughts are that, yeah, you're completely right. Um, not everyone's going to get what they want, but, mm-hmm. you know, it is it is very important to find that middle ground. Um, I think that everyone can agree that we're very fractured. Um, we're very, you know, polarized, but finding that middle ground um, in something that we can is always important. Um, and like you said earlier, it's not a beautiful solution oftentimes, but it's an ugly solution to an ugly problem. So, nice. Well, we all uh, we are all in this country together. It's all it's every if everybody who is voting has an interest in it, and everybody therefore has to kind of reach out, especially to those who disagree with them, and find these solutions too. There's always a common ground. There's always a solution out there. We just have to come together, be informed, and be willing to listen, too. So everybody out there, always be willing to listen and always be informed and always talk to the other side. Because, ladies and gents, we got a republic to keep. Thank you for listening.